Escape from Plan A. Hey there, listeners. Welcome to another episode of Escape from Plan A. I am your sometimes host, uh, Philip. And uh, today, uh, we have an interesting conversation around activism in the tech industry. Um, this is actually a, the third part in our series on tech uh, within the Planet podcast. Um, but before we get started, I want to do a little bit of uh, Oxford condo housekeeping, uh, keep my bosses happy. So uh, if you haven't had a chance yet to uh, check out the show on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Google Play and subscribe to us there, rate us five stars, please do that. It's actually one of the best ways you guys can help us uh, keep growing the podcast. Um, check out our articles on planetmag.com. And uh, we have a, a Patreon um, that's been going on for a while now. It's been pretty successful. Um, we got bonus episodes and a uh, Discord for fans uh, that you can get access to if you contribute to the Patreon. Um, and I just want to highlight actually one interesting thing that came out of the second episode of the tech series. We talked about entrepreneurship um, and startups. And that actually led us to starting an entrepreneurship channel in the Discord, which has been a pretty, pretty cool thing that came out of this whole thing. There's a whole bunch of people in there, um, you know, Asian American business folks, um, of all different walks, uh, sharing advice, kind of war stories, horror stories, um, chat about the future of entrepreneurship. Really, really cool stuff, really cool support network. And, and that's, uh, accessible to you as, as a patron. So just wanted to get that out of the way before we jump into the conversation. Um, so today, um, we are going to be, uh, again, talking about uh, uh, activism in the tech industry. Um, I'm not a huge kind of expert in this space. I don't know a ton about, you know, this sort of um, activism work and, and uh, 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 collective uh, action that's been going on, um, organizing, um, it, you know, kind of labor forces and so on. That's not a huge thing that I'm super aware of. I'm just kind of aware of the stories. Um, but we brought in a couple really cool guests to uh, speak to us on on these things. So uh, why don't I get you guys, um, Jimmy and Arcade, to introduce yourselves, give us a bit of your background, tell us kind of what you're up to, um, and uh, tell us a bit about how you found Plan A. So Jimmy, you want to start? Uh, sure. Um, yeah, so my name is Jimmy. I'm uh, a Bay Area lifer. I've jumped around the East Bay, South Bay, and now San Francisco proper. Um, I studied computer science in college and then went to grad school and focused on um, theoretical computer science, if, if you all know what that is, um, uh, pretty useless stuff. So if you study that, then pretty much the <laughs> only way you can continue to do that is to, to, to go into academia. Um, I did a master's and did, did a, a, a load of research and, um, for various reasons decided not to continue to the PhD. Um, and then I, I graduated with a master's and, and went to work as a machine learning engineer. And around that time, cool. I was, uh, towards the end of, uh, my master's and the beginning of work, I was also, uh, thinking about, uh, politics for the first time, uh, seriously. And, mm -hmm. um, I found, uh, TWC, Tech Workers Coalition through a friend and have, uh, have been with TWC since then and also doing some writing on the side. Sweet. And, uh, J Jimmy, uh, has a really cool, um, article, uh, called Optimize What? Um, on 
this uh, online uh, magazine called uh, The Commune, I believe. We'll, we'll have a link to that um, in the show notes uh, for later. Um, and, but Jimmy, how did you find, how did you come across Plan A? Uh, so uh, I was, I, I don't write on Medium anymore, but there was there was a period of time when I was writing on Medium and I, I stumbled across, I guess the recommendation algorithms decided that it was uh, Plan A content would, would be good for me and they were certainly right. Um, and I just started reading articles. I think Oxford's articles were the first ones I uh, kind of read through a lot of them. And I liked how I thought, you know, I just thought they were very uh, politically thoughtful pieces that were uh, roughly from a progressive left standpoint, but also very ecumenical. Uh, and uh, yeah, and then I got in contact with, with others in Plan A. Cool. Awesome. Uh, and RK, how about you? Uh, yeah, hey y'all. I'm uh, RK. Um, also, like Jimmy, a Bay Area lifer. Although I've recently just kind of uprooted and uh, moved to Texas. Um, but yeah, I got an uh, engineering background um, and uh, went to UC Berkeley and um, I've basically been in the energy industry, energy and resources for my most of my professional career. Uh, mostly doing automation and controls, like um, software type stuff. And, uh, yeah, and I've also been, been with the uh, same organization, Tech Workers Coalition, since uh, around late 2016 or so. And, uh, yeah, um, but yeah, so it's been cool to get involved in organizing because, um, I've been, well, I don't, I haven't done a lot of organizing. I've mainly done a lot of reading and writing. But it's been cool to get into get organizing and activism in the tech industry space and, um, kind of combine my, technical side of my world and the more political and philosophical side. Got it. Yeah. And you have a couple, uh, a bunch of really interesting articles actually online. One of them um, that I was just reading, The Radical Foundation of Indian Technoscience. Um, are, are you a South Asian, actually? Yeah, I'm an Indian American. Parents migrated here cool. so, in the 80s, like a lot of people. And uh, yeah, first generation. Great, great. So, like, it's good to it's good to get kind of get that perspective too, um, just around the topics of uh, you know organizing what that means for Asian Americans. Um, it, it's good to see. I, it, I think it's interesting, like the kind of like labor questions that come into uh, play are a little bit different from folks in South Asia, India, especially versus like China or Asian Americans. You know, especially a lot of things around like visas and whatnot. We'll we'll get into that later in the conversation. Um, and how did you hear about Plan A? You know, I don't remember. I think it was also just, I don't know, something on the internet and I came across it and I was like, okay, this is interesting. And then, yeah, as time went on, I was like, all right, this is more than interesting. This is pretty cool. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. Somewhere in the buck of the internet, I came across and stuck with it. The dark corners of the internet. That's how folks always find us. Okay. Um, awesome. All right. Thanks guys for coming on. I just kind of want to jump right into the, the conversation here. So, just a bit of background for the listeners. Um, you know, uh, the, in the tech industry, if you've been following any news, and I, I think it's not just tech news, but mainstream news, you know, there's been a lot of unrest and protest around the tech industry. Um, you have a lot of conversations um, around you know, labor movements forming. Um, and I think that as part of this conversation, we want to we, we want to talk about those things, but also try to draw some links to how this affects Asian Americans. Um, I think for some reasons that are obvious, like the fact that, you know, we're a huge part of the technology industry. Um, and some, some areas where it's not as obvious too, right? Why, where the solidarity where you may not usually see it. Um, again, a lot has been going on the last few years. Um, I think there's 
pretty big areas of struggle you're seeing um, where there's a lot of protest, um, privacy and ethics being, you know, the kind of obvious ones with these tech companies, social justice, uh, labor practices being kind of another big area, um, a lot of stuff around sexual harassment related to Me Too, for sure. Um, and even some things around human rights and whatnot as well. So, um, you know, lots to dissect. We'll try to talk about things kind of broadly and, and zo zoom in on some areas uh, where they make sense. Um, and I also wanted to highlight a couple major protests that have been going on that you might have heard of in the news, right? Just as an example, like, you know, there's been rideshare protests ever since Uber and Lyft really became a thing, right? Lots of disruption caused by drivers in, you know, cities all around the world. Um, uh, you know, at Google, big, big tech company, you know, you've had that huge kind of uh, sexual harassment walkout over the Annie Rubin scandal, um, just, uh, not too long ago. Um, a lot of organizing around military contracts, a lot of protests around, um, things related to building search engine for China. Um, contractor rights comes into play as well. Um, and then other huge company, Amazon, right? You have the kind of, uh, revolt against HQ2 in Queens, which was, I think surprisingly successful. They managed to to push Amazon out, uh, which is an inter interesting conversation. Um, there's a lot of stuff around, you know, ice contracts, facial recognition, um, and then more recently, climate change as well. Actually, I, I think, okay, I don't know if you put this on, on the outline here, but climate change with Amazon, I didn't realize that people were actually protesting that. Was that something that was protested externally or was that like a employees internally complaining about like, oh, energy yeah, consumption? I, um... I actually did not put that on the outline, but um, I agree. It's very interesting. It was actually, for what I can tell, it was mostly internal employees that were organizing against it. It was, you know, petitions kind of getting passed around on the inside and workers yeah. on the inside really wind Amazon to, you know, commit to a zero carbon future. And, uh, and especially, in, you yeah. know, that's, that's easy, but, you know, especially divest from their contracts with fossil fuel companies. Um, but yeah, I think right. it's been mainly employee activism. And I, and what's interesting that we're worth bringing that one up because that actually worked, right? Like, um, I think Jeff Bezos came out just a couple of weeks ago to say, Hey, we now have a plan to move Amazon towards zero emissions over the next five, 10, whatever X years. Um, so it's, 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 it's kind of cool to see this, you know, activity actually affecting change. And we'll get into kind of like the logistics and how that all works. You guys are the experts in that space. Um, uh, a little bit later in the pod. Um, but, uh, yeah, I want to start, you know, that's the background. I want to start to talk, start by talking a bit about the kind of the evolution of this issue. Um, and the big question I had, you know, is how, how bad is it? Right? Like I, I work in tech. I pay a lot of attention to tech news. Um, you know, I get this stuff fed to me daily by various algorithms, ironically. Um, but is it really bad? Is it, do you, do you guys feel like the scrutiny here for the tech industry is a lot worse than say like the finance industry back in the nineties and the aughts, uh, leading up to the recession? Um, you know, are the stakes higher? Jimmy, Jimmy, what do you think? Uh, so I do not know how much, uh, scrutiny there was on the finance industry in the nineties, uh, cause I was, uh, I was a bit too young then and, uh, Mm. Not, not that politically conscious. Um, I do think the scrutiny on tech is, um, is certainly warranted in that, you know, tech is sort of a, it's sort of this platform layer that has invaded every aspect of society. Just like, uh, everything in capitalist society requires finance in order to function. Today, everything mm -hmm. requires tech. And so, I don't know, even if you, even if you don't think it, it deserves as much scrutiny, uh, in terms of what the precise things has done, I think the tech industry, um, in terms of the development of of our economy and our politics, I think it's 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 time that 
that the focus shifted to tech? Yeah, I definitely agree. It's definitely warranted. Um, I don't have a sense of whether it's the has the same intensity or, or more intense than what the screening on finance was. Um, I think it's definitely different. I think that finance, uh, you know, back in the 90s, and, and finance has always been kind of this, you know, bad guy, right? Like, you mm-hmm. watch movies about, like, evil bankers from, like, you know, from, like, the you know, 50s and 60s and whatnot, I think. Um, and I think that, I think the effect that it has is that it means that, from what I can tell, people that go work in finance, you know, generally know what they're getting into. And um, they're not the ones that are going to be, you know, protesting their own companies. Like, you don't see Goldman Sachs right. bankers protesting against, you know, Goldman Sachs' policies in Greece or whatever. Um, I think the reason why I would probably say that the scrutiny in tech is probably much more intense and is not going to go away is precisely because a lot of the criticism is coming from the workers themselves. And, you know, the, mm. the movement is coming from inside the house, you know, <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's not gonna, it's not this external force, like, you know, you might say for like anti-finance or anti-Wall Street activism, it's something that's kind of within it. And is basically, right. it's like dealing with fundamental contradictions inside a tech industry itself. Yeah, that's, and we were just before we started recording, we were just talking about how, um, you know, uh, a lot of issues you, you see in the mainstream news today are kind of not all, not all of them, but like a number of things have popped up because of it existing in the tech uh, industry. I don't know if because of like, you know, just people's kind of being enamored with tech in the last decade or so since the iPhone came out um, has caused people to think about things like imposter syndrome, like imposter syndrome. I think we did an episode on this uh, on plan A. Um, it, it's been around probably forever. Right. But because, um, you know, tech and science and so on are talking about it now, it gets a little bit more kind of scrutiny outside as well. Um, one thing I want to say about the kind of, so we're, we're kind of getting to the differences, right, between, um, you know, tech and empowerment in the world of tech to say something and do something versus other industries. Um, isn't it kind of, what I find kind of strange is like, I've been at these big tech companies myself, and there's this kind of concept of like a progress, progressive tech culture, Right. Where tech companies like, at least on the outside or, you know, the, at least in, an inside when you're kind of like jo- joining as a new employee, there's this like Kool-Aid that they feed you, right? Like this indoctrination that happens around like how great it is to work there, you know, how, how inclusive the place is, you know, how supportive the workplace wants to be, you know, they want you to be successful there as well. Um, there's always this feeling that you could like speak out and, and make change within the company, right? Like at Google, they had this like, you know, don't be evil kind of slogan that got them into a lot of trouble. Um, and they also had like, you know, not just at Google, but a bunch of different companies. Um, internal town halls, right? Like Google would have a town hall kind of every Friday where you could publicly post questions for the founders of the company, literally, right? And people could upvote them, downvote them like on Reddit. And then those questions would get asked publicly like at, at you know, in, well, not publicly, but in, in front of the entire company. Um, you know, it, it's interesting that like that, 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 that kind of culture can still exist, but yet there are issues, you know what I'm saying? Like, it seems like just having internal scrutiny is not enough, right? It still leads to a lot of these issues. So, I don't know. Maybe there's a sense that, like, all of that stuff is kind of for show. And the, the, the corporation is still going to function as it sees fit in terms of how it treats, you know, employees, how it treats the environment, how it treats, you know, specific groups of people like women and people of color, et cetera. 
Um, did, did you guys, I don't know if you guys have worked like, like kind of like these kind of progressive quote unquote software companies, but did you ever get a sense that like there was this openness that was not quite true or anything like that? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I think, uh, I, I don't want to get in trouble here because, uh, I have a pretty short work history. Um, but, um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think that, and I actually think that just tying this back to what we were saying before, I think a major reason why it feels intense, the scrutiny on tech is be- precisely because, uh, it has, tech has had this, uh, this veneer of progressivism for such a long time that did not go seriously questioned. And now it's turning out that, you know, uh, just like any other, um, any other industry, uh, tech is beholden to the profit motive. Tech is beholden to the interests of the government that uh, has largely funded its, you know, its, its basic research, um, and, and still, uh, purchases a lot of technology today. Um, tech is, you know, tech is still largely corporations that are run just as any other corporations are. You know, even if there are yeah. these town hall, the town halls where you can, uh, kind of voice your opinion it's you know ultimately they will it's kind of manufactured consent right although i won't say that those are completely useless um in my own organizing i have you know you have to when you're an organizer you have to use whatever avenues are available to you so you know if there's a way to voice opinions to some extent uh within the company you have to use those but um by and large they're not intended to be anything other than uh for manufacturing consent of the workers well what do you mean by manufacturing consent you mean just like kind of doing something that's kind of uh, for show, but not something that they're actually going to do anything about. Yeah, exactly. Like have a town hall, um, you know. So, so like I, just before this podcast, I was watching um, this episode of, uh, not episode, this video um, for this popular YouTuber, tech lead, um, who talks a lot about working at Google and Facebook. And he was talking about the uh, Facebook suicide that happened just uh, the last month or so. And he was saying like, you know, he's pretty, pretty kind of... Um, you know, upset about the whole thing because he knew that what they were going to do was just have like a town hall where they can answer like your toughest questions about the matter and then like hope that kind of, you know, satiates the the desire for justice people have in the company. And then like a week later, you don't hear about it anymore, right? Like that kind of thing. Like it's a, it's a sort of placation that goes on, right? Rather than any actual action that happens. Is that what you mean? Yeah, absolutely. Yes. Yeah, uh it's interesting. I would, I think you mentioned earlier, like, you know, you asked, like, is, um, is, uh, shoot, I forgot what you said. But anyway, um, I think that the, I think it is precisely, and that's kind of what this, the contradiction I was referring to earlier was, like, this contradiction between people's, the people that are basically, you know, either drinking the Kool-Aid about tech being progressive and whatnot, and, um, and expecting that and, and wanting that versus the fact that fundamentally these are simply profit maximizing institutions. And, you know, when it comes down to it, they will throw ethics and politics and progressivism under under the bus in terms of, you know, in the pursuit of more profits. Um, and I think that, you know, people, that contradiction is just then, you know, means that people are going to, that actually do want that, are going to tr- start organizing and mobilizing against the company's bottom line. And uh, I think that's kind of what's been driving a lot of the stuff we've been seeing in the last few years. It's been people actually do want to be part of a, you know, a, a progressive organization, a, um, a political, a politicized organization and facing contradictions between that and, you know, making money. And, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's been interesting. And yeah, town halls are yeah. definitely, I think, um, I think both me and Jimmy have seen like, I don't know, like it's been always been cool to hear stories from like people at the bigger companies about like 
And like even in a, in a medium companies too, like this is stories about the town halls, especially after a controversy where it becomes really clear to way more people after like a controversial thing that yeah, these town halls are basically just collective HR meetings where they try to you know cover up things or you know downplay downplay bad stuff that's happening, uh, try to dodge questions and basically try to mollify people. Uh, but at, at the end of the day, not actually change anything if they can get away with it. Right. Right. And it's, it's a, a lot of it. I mean, one of those big stakeholders, right? That, that kind of drives things from behind the scenes are the, the shareholders, right? Um, and the need to make sure the shareholders are happy with everything. And so one, one like really disturbing thing I, I discovered. Um, so I, I own shares in some like tech, tech companies that I bought into some time ago. And it's interesting. You can own a single share in a company like Amazon or something. And they will have to send you like an invite, uh, to like their shareholder meetings, right? And along with that invite, which is like literally a paper letter they send to you, there's a bunch of topics that they want the shareholders to vote on. And it'll say things like, you know, the committee suggests that you vote against the following. And they'll list like the different kind of motions that they want to go through. And they're often things like, you know, they want you to vote against, you know, um, a, a, you know, in, internal scrutiny into uh, uh, like sexual harassment incidents or whatever at the company or vote against, um, you know, uh, uh, the need to like move towards, you know, green energy projects within, within the company and all these things that you would kind of look at and be like, these are positive things that you'd imagine the PR parts of the company would, you know, want to espouse, uh, as, as, you know, things that are done well within corporation X, Y, or Z. But the, sh- the shareholder, um, you know, uh, like letter to the, to, um, all the shareholders of the company. It, it really points you in the opposite direction and almost puts pressure on you to like not do anything, right? And not that you could, right? Like I, you own a single share or a small number of shares in, in a massive company. But is this, is this interesting to see that, right? To see kind of like behind the scenes what the actual motivations are um, for the corporation. So that's definitely being yeah. kind of eye-opening for me to see that. It's, it's kind of scary <laughs> as well. Um, yeah, not surprising, but pretty interesting. And I wonder if some of this has to do with the fact that some of the activism has actually been around shareholder activism and trying to mobilize shareholders to actually push the company into like a certain direction. Um, it's been a bit a more recent and contained thing, but I wonder if some of this, some of that stuff is not a, res- a direct response to shareholder activism. Well, yeah. What do you mean by that? Okay. Is that like, is that like when, when employees will find the shareholders of the company and like lobby them to like vote in favor of kind of progressive, Motions like what does that yeah yeah mean to, uh, to do not just yeah, not just workers but also like just any kind of external like you know nonprofit mm. or activist or community organizing group um, that's been something that people have talked about and have tried to do I think I think Amazon had to face some of this uh, shareholder activism I think there was a number of kind of community groups and nonprofits that are trying to get Amazon to dump their uh, facial recognition program um, yeah and they're going about it through a shareholder activism uh, thing. Um, I don't think it worked out. Uh, no, it didn't work out. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a strategic choice that some people made. Right. And, and like, you know, on this topic of like agency and action, right? There's, there's a lot of different ways, uh, employees or even external folks can, can kind of like lobby or, or try to enact change, right? And so I think Jimmy, you, you added this to our, our notes here, like petitions, open letters, like these kind of smaller, less dramatic worker actions. Have you seen those around companies you've been to? Like, what are they like? Do they, do they end up doing anything? What's, what's your thought on those, Jimmy? Uh, yeah. So, um, I'll say that. And I think, um, 
uh, shareholder actions fall, falls into this uh, kind of. So I, I think of the walkout or a walkout is basically a nice uh, uh, a euphemism for, for a brief strike, right? So you think of the strike as being the ultimate weapon that labor has, um, the withholding of your labor. Um, and then you sort of think about, okay, what are all the, the things that you could do to build up to a strike or walkout? Or even if you think you, you'll never get there, uh, even if you never get there, what are all the other things you can do? Um, I'll just say that, uh, the shareholder stuff is, is one of those, one of those, uh, avenues you have. And I, I find those interesting. First of all, I think it's hilarious that you got, you get those letters. Um, I'm clearly working for the wrong <laughs> companies. Um, should get in on oh, that. I don't work for them. I just, I just own like, you know, a share or two in whatever Tesla or whatever. Oh, right? I see. And then I, I end up getting these letters. Like it's, yeah, it's, it's pretty funny, but you do get them. Yeah. I think so that, that's a recent development in, in worker action. Um, I know that in addition to what RK said, um, some Amazon workers brought, uh, climate change, uh, proposals, uh, to, to Amazon shareholder meetings, right? Um, and, uh, and that's well warranted because, uh, recently we've discovered that researchers have discovered, for example, that Amazon Web Services, AWS, on which basically the entire internet relies, um, uses a tremendous amount of energy. I think, uh, mm-hmm. even training one cutting edge, uh, AI model uses as much uh, emits as much CO2 as, uh, uh, five American cars over their entire lifetime. So something like that. So, um, these kind of shareholder actions are, are, are becoming a thing. But I, I think yep. that they're basically, they're basically not going to get anywhere unless they are, uh, projections of existing worker power, right? So workers, uh, if we want to, if we want to exercise our leverage as workers at the point of production, then we need to organize one another and we have to have strength uh on the shop floor and then we can project out from that into short sort of the shareholder realm but i feel like the the shareholder avenue is not something that is going to make uh big changes independently although maybe i can imagine that uh these amazon workers and workers elsewhere are doing uh are putting up shareholder resolutions also um to put a spotlight on these issues so those kinds of things garner a lot of media attention so that uh media attention has been you know, a helpful tool in tech organizing as well. Uh, so I guess we shouldn't, we shouldn't discount that. But anyway, some other, um, other sort of smaller actions that have been popular are, um, petitions, um, open letters, again, going for that media attention. Um, and another thing that is really, op- is really interesting, uh, and prominent in tech is, um, uh, is stuff that happens on university campuses. So, uh, be, because these tech work, t- these tech companies are so reliant on highly skilled, uh, labor from, uh, elite universities and such. Um, so, uh, organizing and radicalizing these students has been fruitful as well. Um, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I, I think there's been at least, at least two articles talking about how students on, you know, Stanford, right? One of the most important kind of direct shoots of uh, talent into the likes of Facebook, Google, etc. There's been a lot of like ennui there um, around, uh, you know, joining these companies, right? Like it's not cool anymore to like openly parade around the fact that you got a Facebook internship or an Uber internship, right? Um, that's that's definitely going to change the way, um, you know, I, I think that actually is interesting. It, it goes back to what you guys were saying about, um, you know, what's the ultimate weapon? It's around withholding labor, 
right? And it's not just about an existing hired employee striking. It's also about the inability to get additional labor, right? These, these companies grow at such tremendous rates. They really need to have that, again, direct conveyor belt of students from Stanford CS 401, right? Graduating class right into, um, uh, right into their, uh, uh, their, their, you know, new grad forces. So it's, it's definitely a big piece as well. Um, and then like, I think, I want to contribute a little bit here too to this question of like different, different ways of, of, um, taking action. One interesting thing I've seen before, um, is this the, the kind of topic of like rogue employees. So like whistleblowers are kind of like the traditional rogue employee, right? But I think in tech companies, there's been some more interesting kind of, um, manifestations of rogue employees, you know, taking action internally. Um, while def- obviously defying company policy, right? But um, but doing some interesting things there. Um, one example, and this is not actually activism against a per- particular kind of like misdeed, unless you consider Internet Explorer 6 to be a misdeed. But um, th- there was this story about um, a bunch of YouTube employees that had this um, kind of internal con- conspiracy that they pulled off to kill IE6. And what they did was that they actually implemented this like banner ad at the top of um, every YouTube video, basically, that said that, you know, IE6 is being sunsetted or something um, in, in terms of YouTube support and you had to switch to Chrome or some other browser, right, in order to uh, keep using YouTube. And that apparently led to a huge downtick of uh, IE6 users and a huge uptick uh, for Firefox, Chrome and others. Um, and it actually worked. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know if the same kind of thing would manifest with like, you know, Google employees trying to sabotage like you know, Dragon Firefly, which is like the China search engine project or, or Amazon employees trying to sabotage like the recognition, which is their facial recognition project or whatever. And I'm, I'm not saying that they should. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, that's, um, that's definitely something that, that is possible in the world of tech that is not possible, um, elsewhere. Um, and then there's also uh, the Facebook post-election task force. So after the Donald Trump was elected a couple of years ago, um, a whole bunch of employees of Facebook uh, were really, really kind of rattled by this. And they actually formed um, a, a internal task force to just like, you know, uh, kind of organize and, and discuss uh, and brainstorm around how to, how to quote unquote fix things within Facebook. I actually don't know what came from that, right? But that was an interesting kind of internal uh, set of employees that were you know, completely unsanctioned by management uh, who started to, to try to take things into their own hands um, in, in some small or big way. So interesting to see those things kind of crop up as well. Um, yeah, I think um, there's one example that's kind of related to that, but um, it's kind of maybe a cross between kind of rogue employees and kind of worker, like collective action and strikes and whatnot. And it's actually mm-hmm. the case at Google. Um, and I think this was one of the first kind of opening shots in Google's like very tumultuous few years. But um it was around, I think, Project Maven, which was a Google project to basically help uh, military drones do like mm-hmm. image processing, so they can like target better, maybe even automate the process of you know running military drones. And that was that caused a huge stir, if anyone, if people remember. But um, basically, one of the things that really killed the project and really killed um, some of the future ability of Google to do work with military contractors was that mm-hmm. it was a group group of nine workers that basically said, and they were like at the center of like some of the, um, some of the development around, around um, some of like Google's higher tech development. Specifically, I think they were asked to work on air gap technology so that Google could make, um, could have like server setups that could be um, 
in compliance with the Defense Department's um, you know, security needs. And they basically said, we're just not going to work on this. We just refuse to work on this because we don't support uh, Google working with military contracts. And that mm. basically, it, it was basically a huge rallying point for all the anti-Maven and anti-military contractor people within the company. And also just on its own, just a group of nine saying, we're not going to work on this was really effective in basically forcing the company to take the unrest around these contracts seriously. And uh, yeah. I think it, it became a huge, um, a huge reason why Google really actually started backing away from these military contracts. Interesting. I did not know about that, that case at all. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, there's a really good uh, article um, in Bloomberg News called, um, I think if you use Google Bloomberg News and a group of nine Google, you'll find this pretty interesting inside look at what they did and the impact it had within the company. Interesting. Here's an interesting kind of ethical dilemma with this kind of rogue employee activism, right? Like, uh, I, I think maybe the three of us can agree that like not doing Project Maven is a quote unquote good thing, right? For, for society in general. But like, what if employees kind of took this action on things that, you know, were not necessarily, you know, generally believed by collective people to be positive, right? Like even the IE6, the Internet Explorer 6 thing, it's like, okay, say what you will about Inter- Internet Explorer 6 being a shitty browser that held back the internet or whatever, right? But like, you know, what, what right to the, YouTube employees really have to to make that call, right? That's kind of why it's like uh, a little bit tricky when it's something that an individual or a small group of individuals um, make a call about, right? Because they have the power to as software engineers at a company, right? That others would not, right? There's some privilege that comes with that, I'd say. So I think this is a really, this is, I haven't thought about this too deeply, but I think it's an interesting point because uh, and I'm not trying to make you look bad here, Philip, but this is a kind of simi- <laughs> very similar to a point that Alex Karp, CEO of Palantir, made recently in uh-huh. this really shitty op-ed in the, was the Washington Post or something, um, where he said that, you know, whether we work on, whether or not we work on, um, uh, contracts with ICE, um, it should not be for me, uh, the Silicon Valley elite to say it should be left to, um, to American democracy, to, to, to the, to the electorate uh, of the entire country to decide. It shouldn't be up to us as a as one Silicon Valley firm to decide. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's just a real, a shameful perversion of the principle of democracy. Um, of course, look, uh, workers are not universally progressive. Workers have um, disparate uh, political tendencies and interests. But by and large, I have a lot of faith in the politics of working people, um, in that they, you know, most of us are not billionaires. Most of us are not CEOs or their lackeys. Um, most of our, most of us, um, are, you know, most of us have interests that are aligned with other working class people, um, even those who are making six figures in the Bay Area. So, uh, of course you have to, you have to meet people where they're at when you're organizing. So you have to, um, you have to work with them, work with people to politicize issues in the right way, but uh, to achieve progressive goals. But by and large, uh, workers are a much greater force for good than uh, the CEOs who who wield formal control uh, over these corporations. Yeah, I hundred uh, percent agree. And also, I'll say like, but I think you know, it is um, the the refrain that um, you know, like, well, what 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 if you know a small group of people that aren't aligned with, you know, 
leftist values or whatever are, are taking action. I think basically that just gets at the point, you know, kind of like what Jimmy was getting at was like, this is, there's no way this isn't a kind of political battle. It's not, it's, it, it can't, there's no way it's not going to be a kind of, you know, a, a social movement that is having to battle on the terrain of ideas and, you know, win people over and whatnot. And, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, there's absolutely a point, uh, there's absolutely a, a possibility, um, that, collective actions and, you know, rogue employees and even, even larger institutions like unions can get co-opted by, you know, right-wing forces or reactionary forces, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, that's, that's the case in India. There's a lot of conflict between left-wing and right-wing unions. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that that just kind of, I think it kind of frames the strategy and the kind of like what needs to be done differently. But I think at the end of the day, we should still be definitely, you know, looking for ways to, um, you know, throw, throw wrenches into the gears of the machines and whatnot and, uh, and organized, you know, shut down things we don't, we don't, we, we don't like. And also, you know, just have, have confidence and have faith in our own ethical and political, you know, viewpoints and, you know, work to develop those. And, and, um, well said. Push, pushback accepted. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's a great uh, question. Okay. Actually, there's something. Yeah, there's something there that uh, you said, Jimmy, um, that I want to, to point at to get to the next topic, which is this kind of idea of, you know, someone earning six figures in the Bay Area, right? What do they really have in common with other, other folks, other workers? Um, and this kind of gets to this topic of like the challenges that come up when you're talking about organizing specifically tech workers, right? And, and this kind of complication around the class position. Um, so RK, you had this, um, uh, interesting article, um, in Science for the People, uh, where it's, it's titled uh, Lessons from the Long 60s of Organizing in Tech. Um, you talk a lot about history in like France and Italy and the U.S. Um, that are kind of relatable um, strategies or, or events that happened to how organizing in tech might, might happen today. One thing you touched on there was this concept of professionalism. Uh, can you kind of define, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm still not fully sure what that means. Can you kind of define what that means for the listeners? Sure, I'll, uh, I'll try. I mean, yeah, it's a very fuzzy concept. Um, but I think, you know, I mean, when you say professional, I think most people kind of think of someone like a lawyer or a doctor mm-hmm. or an engineer, I think. Um, and I think, you know, when you put it like that, I think a professional is generally defined as this kind of upper middle class occupation, uh, built on some kind of like knowledge acquired over a long period of time. And, you know, it has this kind of prestige to it, this kind of like, you know, oh, like, you know, you're not, you're not working class, but you're also not like, you know, the CEO or something, but you're definitely some kind of small proprietor, perhaps, or you are some kind of elite worker at the very least. Um, mm-hmm. And I think it's, you know, it's wrapped up in a lot of, a lot of stuff. Um, you know, like there's a strong, I think professionalism has with it a strong individualist streak. You know, it's all about whether you build up your own skills expand your own, you know, knowledge base, you know, put in long hours, uh, really like identify with your craft. Like it's not just a job, right? It becomes kind of part of your identity. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and yeah, and I think in the article, um, in, the, in that essay, uh, that I co-wrote with, um, another tech workers coalition uh, member, um, we try to kind of dissect what professionalism meant for people in the seventies, um, in the sixties and seventies in the West. And especially among engineers and, uh, other kind of skilled technical workers. And, um, and basically what was interesting was that around this time, there was, you know, huge, huge unrest happening across the West. I mean, you had some of the biggest strikes and riots and mass protests that the West has ever seen and has not really seen since. 
um, you know, in 1968 in France, Italy, um, and, you know, the U.S. saw some of that, too. And so you had a whole generation of people, um, a large uh, minority in, like, engineering and whatnot and scientists and whatnot who were trying to, who were involved in all that and then started to question, oh, well, like, what does it mean to be a professional but also someone that has serious, deep grievances with society and more specifically, you know, serious, deep grievances with capitalism and class society. Uh Um, And, you know, they, and they came up with a lot of, um, I mean, yeah, it, you know, turns out that even when these people, you know, wanted to try to identify as working class and join up with these more larger working class movements with the rest of their, you know, occupation, professionalism became, you know, quite the obstacle because professionalism, you know, professionals do not see themselves as working class. They don't necessarily want to see themselves mm. as working class. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and, um, I don't know, that's kind of like just kind of a summary, but, um, I think, uh, it applies, the idea of professionalism and what it means definitely applies to trying to talk about what does it mean to organize in tech and whether tech workers are workers or are they professionals. Um, I think, you know, I mean, I think, uh, I think all of us, I'm, I'll, I'll ask, I mean, Philip and Jimmy, like, did you see, do you see yourselves as professionals or did you at one point and do you now not really want to see your, you know, see yourself as professionals? I, I think, uh, you know, professionals are in this, actually, this is a, a topic that I see a ton on, on, uh, left Twitter nowadays, the, what they call the professional, um, uh, the professional managerial class, right? The PMC is, is all the rage now. Um, and, uh, you know, these professionals can be kind of tugged in both directions. So they kind of have, uh, complex, uh, class interests. Um, on the one hand, they have a lot of autonomy in many cases. Um, and uh, are sometimes uh, paid well, although many professionals today are not. Um, many professionals uh, nowadays are, are kind of downward, mo- downwardly mobile. Uh, but on the other hand, they're still workers. So I think uh, you have to find those uh, those cracks in the ideology where sometimes the professional worker will realize that uh, that they're that they're actually a worker, that they're actually a member of the working class, and you have to dig into that and try to politicize that. Um, and there are, there are such moments in tech, for example, when a professional worker is sexually harassed and the company refuses to do anything about it or even rewards the abuser, um, or when you're forced to work on software that, uh, is disastrous for, uh, for marginalized communities, uh, maybe even your own community, um, or just stuff that you think is, is unethical. So you have to, you have to find, uh, those cracks in the armor and, wedge uh, and drive a wedge between the working professional and you know the 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 executives uh who would like to tell them that they're above politics and that uh their obligation is to some vague uh ethical code of conduct um rather and you know just don't let them uh be convinced that uh that their work is not political i think it also kind of i think it also yeah i think it really comes down to i mean Maybe if we back up a bit and just kind of define like what we think working class means. And for me, it just means that you don't really have like a say in either choosing to work or really how you work. And you don't really, you know, to go to the classic, you know, Marxist definition, you don't control any means of production, right? And I think, you know, um, a lot of professionals are, you know, in this actual category. I think especially lawyers, a lot of lawyers and doctors are kind of in this kind of like upper middle tier where they do have a lot of control over their profession. 
But I think for, mm-hmm. for a lot of tech workers, I mean, increasingly we, I mean, and, you know, people are realizing this, we don't actually have much say in how our companies are run and what the company actually chooses to like, what kind of products they work on, um, what the workplace is structured like, even like, you know, things like pay, pay and benefits, you know, people don't necessarily have a say in that. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and I think getting people to realize that and kind of getting people to realize, you know, you don't actually, you have a lot more in common and, you know, you have a lot more in common with, you know, the security guards and the cooks in the kitchen than you do with this, you know, the people in the C-class, um, the C-suite, right? Uh, I think that's really part of, that's like really the big part of what it means to try to deprofessionalize people and get them to think of themselves as working class. It doesn't necessarily mean that people have to stop having, you know, like entrepreneurial ambitions or stop, you know, like kind of honing the craft or even, you know, you don't have to stop identifying as with coding and programming as being a fun enjoyable and interesting thing it's more about recognizing what your actual class position is and what your relationship with capital is whether you actually actually like you know being having a really harsh and like you know ruthless power analysis of yourself in society and actually asking how much power do you actually have in making decisions and influencing decisions and in controlling you know resources and power um and i think if you do the cap you know like if you, when it comes down to it, most tech workers uh, do not have the kind of power that other professions have. I think you know they're basically, um, you know, rank and file working people. You know, it's interesting. Um, what what kind of clicked for me was I was thinking while you guys were sitting, you know, chatting. Who do I consider to be kind of a, you know, professional? Like who who would have who would I consider to be a professional? How could I segment them so that one group is professional and like not really thought of as working class and the other group is thought of as working class or, or in need of some kind of support as workers. And I think about like in, in the realm of like um, programming, like software engineering programming, I, I don't really think so like, you know, I generally don't think as much or as strongly that like software engineers at like high tech companies as working class, though they are, I'm but I'm I'm more willing to think that People who work at program as programmers at video game companies are they definitely fit that de- uh, definition, mm-hmm. right? And when I think about why my my brain goes there, it's because of the conditions of work that they're put through, right? Like it's so much more grueling a job at like Ubisoft or something, um, or Riot Games or whatever else than at least from what I've heard uh, compared to say a cushy you know uh, tech job at a huge tech company, right? Like Facebook, Google, Amazon, et cetera, right? Not just the pay and so on, but the conditions of work, the hours, the kind of like, um, the kind of like deadlines that you experience. Not that those don't exist at, at the Googles and Facebooks of the world, but the stories you hear, they're way, way worse. <laughs> it seem to be way worse at, at uh, video game companies. Um, and if I'm, if I'm uh, kind of recalling recent events correctly, like there's been a lot of... Um, uh, activism going on in those companies, um, especially around all this kind of sexual harassment stuff that's been happening at Riot Games in particular. Um, and some of the like very early kind of tech unions are forming in the video game industry, um, maybe because the conditions are so bleak there. So I, I don't know if you, you guys hear a lot more from that industry, that sub-industry of tech uh, than other parts of tech, but it, it's definitely an area that gets a lot of scrutiny. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, conditions in the gaming industry are pretty bad. I actually, I think, yeah, the movement in the gaming industry is 
I think pretty, it's gone kind of independently, but parallel with like the kind of tech industry organizing proper. But yeah, they're definitely like mm-hmm. kind of surging ahead in their own direction. I think unions are a much more explicit point of discussion in the game workers um, movement than it is in the tech workers movement as of right now. But yeah, I think it definitely comes down to, yeah, like conditions there are like kind of uniformly much more. Yeah. I mean, it's, they, they have, they've set up coding factories there, you know, like it's, uh, oh, yeah. it's no joke. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think people are, are definitely much more, yeah, on balance, I think, yeah, like the gaming industry is more uniformly kind of oppressive and, and grueling. But I think, you know, I think it does kind of come up with the same, it's taken, it's kind of faced with the same obstacles. I mean, so many people go into the gaming industry because they identified with the industry so much, right? Like they really wanted to work on games. It was, their, yeah. you know, probably their dream since, you know, a kid and stuff. And so... I mean, I haven't talked to a whole lot of game worker organizers, but I imagine it's kind of similar where you have these obstacles where people have to overcome their identification with the industry and wanting to, you know, climb up and maybe like do things through like this fake, you know, false meritocratic methods versus trying to do collective organizing to actually, you know, attack the power centers and actually, you know, make things, um, you know, better for themselves. You know, yeah, I think, um, I agree that the conditions are probably somewhat different, but I think the obstacles and the kind of pathways probably, you know, quite, uh, quite similar to what the, um, mainstream tech industry will have to, uh, and ma- mainstream tech workers will have to go through. Do you guys feel like professionalism is more of an issue for jobs that involve more, like, traditional creativity? For example, like as an artist, like a, like in a gaming industry, it'd be like an animation animator or like a, you know, uh, environment artist or something like that. Like, do you think folks like that don't see themselves as a everyday worker because the nature of their work is so much more, you know, creative? Not that other professions are not as creative, but does, does, is that a factor? Yeah. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely say so. Uh, I, I don't have a deep answer for you, but I think there are a confluence of factors. So there could be, I mean, creativity is definitely one large element to it. If you feel that you exercise a lot of creativity at work, then, um, then naturally you expect to, and you would probably receive, you, you would expect to have a lot of, a fair amount of control over how you do your work and mm-hmm, management mm-hmm, exactly. would probably, sorry. Exactly. Like exactly that idea that like something about creativity is more independent. Right. Yeah. And therefore management would, I mean, if the job truly requires creativity, which I mean, I, I, I want to just say, I think all jobs require, all labor requires creativity. But, um, you know, if, if at least if it's perceived as requiring creativity, then your managers will probably allow you some amount of autonomy, uh, because they want you to be able to do your best work. And that's kind of a fundamental fact about human labor, right? Um, you can't tell the worker how to do every little thing. Otherwise it would kind of be worthless labor. So to the extent that that's true, that um, that's breeding grounds for professionalism as an ideology. Uh, but it also depends on other things, I think, like simply uh, how much you're paid as well. If you're paid shit, then look, you're going to have to, uh, you, right. you might develop some class consciousness as well, even if you use a lot of creativity at work, like if you're an artist. Right. And again, getting back into, you know, uh, the gaming industry where you find a lot of artists in, in working around technology, right? It's often often low paid super grueling, tough deadlines. Um, and, and you, and your work actually gets kind of, um, atomized into, not atomized, but like turned into, um, not, not so creative work in that, in that you're really just kind of like doing the whim of the creative director, whoever that might be, you know, who, who would be in, in a sense, the, 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 um, 
you know, the owner of the labor, so to speak. Um, as an individual artist, you're drawing not in your style. You're not drawing things you want to draw. You're, you're, you know, doing stuff that is in this assembly line of stuff you need to produce for a game or, or whatever. As a, you know, as a graphic designer, maybe similar, right? For, for print media and, and digital media, right? That kind of thing. For UX designers, right? In tech. Um, so yeah, there's, there's some similarities there for sure. Um, so this is an interesting point here about professionalism because I think this kind of links to this connection to, where Asian Americans fit in here, right? Um, a lot of Asian Americans um, uh, are in that bucket of like high earners, uh, knowledge, working class people. Um, we, you know, a lot of us do find ourselves in tech in particular as well. Um, you know, there's, is this, is this a big issue? I mean, do you guys find this issue of professionalism more pervasive around um, your Asian American kind of, friends and coworkers than you do around folks who are uh, not Asian American? Yeah. I, um, yeah, I have a substantial number of, you know, like, you know, grew up in the Bay, you know, shout out Silicon Valley. Like a lot of my, a lot of my friends are, you know, Asians in tech. Um, and actually just, well, kind of one reason why I got so interested in doing like tech organizing and also like kind of trying to connect like my writings on like Asian America and Asian history with like technology and tech organizing um, was because I kind of, you know, I do want to try to figure out ways to rewrite the narrative and like kind of give, give ourselves something else, another kind of like philosophical or political pole to cling on to other than, you know, the, you know, borderline, like, in my opinion, borderline, like nihilistic, like, let's just have a stable career and like make money, you know, and then die. Um, <laughs> um, right. So I think, um, yeah, I think, um, it's, I just say, yeah, so it's kind of almost like a personal, just kind of interest of me, of mine, to just try to organize fellow Asian Americans in tech to, like, yeah, become some kind of block and, like, get organized in some kind of, you know, progressive manner. Um, in terms of specific interests, I mean, I think, I mean, Philip, you wrote a great article in Plan A about, um, you know, uh, why techies are not our friends and talking about, you know, the way that the glass ceiling or the bamboo ceiling affects us, um, talking about, you know, the ways that we're kind of racialized as this kind of like middle tier of like technical workers in, you know, global capitalism. Um, and yeah, so I think there's a lot of specific niche issues that we can, we can, uh, fight against, um, for our own interests and use that to kind of connect with the broader movement. And then through that, you know, take down, uh, problems we have just, you know, with work and capitalism in general. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with everything uh, RK just said. Um, I also think there's um, there's something to be said about our relationship as Asian Americans to, um, you know, uh, uh, our fellow Asian workers who are on visas as well. I think that um, even I feel like Asian Americans are are often, especially in tech, are often hesitant to kind of think of ourselves as in the same uh, bucket as H1B workers, but I think that w- that's a mistake. One, because, uh, for one thing, because kind of white Americans don't look at us that, uh, in that way. They, they, they may actually think of us, uh, as being, you know, as being in the same, in, in the same categories. So, right. uh, so we, we should so- show some solidarity there. Um, we're, we're in the same, uh, labor market and, uh, you know, these, these incredibly arrogant employers are looking at us like we're automatons um, to, you know, to build their software for them. So 
we should we should think of ourselves as fighting the same struggle. And as we, I I haven't been following closely, but um, Philip, you mentioned the the recent suicide at Facebook. And yes, yes, yeah, and you know the the pressures on on uh, immigrant workers are are much more intense. But I mean, aren't those the issues that affect all of us? Um, uh, especially, you know, Asian Americans being as sort of as neurotic as we are, uh, the kind of the stress at work, um, sometimes bullying, um, mental health issues. Although I think that's a, probably a cover for Facebook. Uh, Facebook is using that that as cover, or that's a byproduct of other things that have happened. But, um, but I, I think when we think about those things, it's very clear that we're in the same struggle. Um, and so, uh, I, I think we should have immigrants uh, on our minds as well. So that, I, I mean, hundred percent agree. I just, I just feel like, and this is kind of a recurring theme on Plan A, and that, and like our, our, our dislike of, of, um, you know, certain classes of Asians that treat other Asians poorly, and that I don't know, I don't know for a fact that Asian American workers, tech workers in particular, have that sense of solidarity with Asian workers. Like I agree with you that we absolutely should. Um, and just like a quick note, um, I believe that that. Um, Facebook uh, employee was a not a Chinese American but a Chinese um, employee who uh, was on H1B and one of the concerns people had like thought that he might have had leading to his suicide was that you know he was not in good standing at his job and if he lost a job it means that he lost his would lose his visa and would have to return uh, home right to China so you know an immense amount of pressure that you know immigrant workers might feel that we as, well, not me as a Canadian, but you guys as Americans um, would uh, would not feel like would not have the same weight on your shoulders when, when um, you know, working for a company, a tech company. Um, but, you know, going back to what I was saying, I, I, I don't know for sure if that solidarity exists, right? I think that there's a lot of sense that um, a lot of, especially in, in the way that um, immigrant workers, H-1B workers are, are kind of perceived and treated sometimes. Uh, I, I can imagine Asian American tech workers trying to distance themselves, right? And say that, hey, we're actually different. We're special. We went to an American school. Um, as an, you know, we, were, we grew up here. We have, you know, things that others from Asia might not have, like, like, um, individual, um, you know, individuality and, and creativity, right? In our blood that you don't get from other countries and all this kind of like really fucked up shit that people like to say about, you know, Asian immigrants, right? I, I think that that's a huge, huge struggle to solidarity for, Asian American tech workers, right? Do you guys have those similar vibes? I, don't, I know you haven't been steeped in the same kind of like, um, uh, uh, what, what, what do I call it? Cynicism that some of us on planet have, but like certainly it's out there, right? That sentiment. I think, yeah, it's probably, it's definitely important to recognize. It sounds almost like, I don't know, you could always describe that as like a dynamic, like, you know, a kind of like racial professionalism where like Asian Americans are the professionals of, you know, the uh, wider Asian um, tech scene. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I can't say how much I think that's like how big an obstacle I think that is. Um, I think it's definitely something that should be taken seriously and, uh, something that should be fought uh-huh. against. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, and I'm not, I'm not, uh, not a hundred percent sure you know, off the top of my head what that kind of strategy would look like. But, um, I don't know. I mean, for me though, like a lot of my families on and like a lot of my, especially like my extended family and extended relations are kind of are here on H1B. Like my family is basically just mm-hmm. packed, you know, wall to wall with basically software engineers, um, a huge, a huge chunk of whom are on like, you know, H1B visas or some kind of visa. Um, yeah. And uh, I think that, so, I mean, this may not apply to 
all Asian Americans, but I feel like a substantial number of us, you know, especially from these H1B heavy countries like India and China, are we probably know a lot of people like that are in our family or friends networks that are, you know, uh, dealing with this kind of thing. And it should will, will hopefully, you know, give more impetus for some solidarity. And I don't know, maybe one thing we can do is just talk about that more and talk about talk with our other, you know, Asian American friends and, and our networks and stuff. Uh, you know, the fact that, yeah, like I, we identify with our, uh, you know, our immigrant fellows and whatnot. And we think we should work together to, you know, um, stop the exploitation, stop the, uh, the, the, uh, the oppression and whatnot and, uh, you know, organize together. I think, um, there is one, actually, one thing that comes to mind, probably one of the more obvious points actually is like the, um, in, this is maybe a larger point about activism and organizing, but I think that all, in my opinion, all organizing and activism should be anchored in some kind of self-interest because otherwise, if it's purely altruistic, I don't think it's necessarily sustainable. Like it's, if it's purely from a, you know, oh, you know, I want to give charity to those, you know, poor people. I don't think it's sustainable. I don't even think it, know if it comes from like necessarily like a great place. Um, but I think that trying to find that self-interest that can align your interest with other people's and then build solidarity like that is like the most important way to go about organizing and, and activism. And in terms of the H1B and immigration issue, I mean, we should all be concerned and try to fix these issues because, you know, uh, one of the big narratives, right, is that H1Bs are used to basically bring down the wages and bring in cheap, readily exploitable labor into the tech industry, right? And even if you don't care, even if you want to distance yourself from, you know, immigrant workers, you should care about the effect that it's having on the labor market. And therefore, you're, and of course, you know, the answer is not, you know, some kind of like nativist, you know, like deport them all or end the visa. Uh, it should be to reform the visa, you know, at the very least mm-hmm. and say, okay, like, you don't, you no longer have to be this kind of indentured servant where you cannot leave the company without risking deportation. Uh, you can actually, once you get the visa, you can come here, you can bounce around like the rest of us. You can, you know, uh, have like one year, 10 years. You don't have to stay at a company for five years. You can actually, you know, negotiate for, for, um, higher wages. You can risk getting fired and uh, know that you don't have to jump into another job right away. Um, and, uh, yeah. And then I think, you know, um, we should be emphasizing that kind of idea that the best way, the best solution to the way these companies exploit international uh, immigration markets is to give immigrant workers the full rights of, you know, uh, citizen workers. Yeah, for sure. And I think uh, one interesting thing actually is is um, around like the possibility, and I know we're discussing whether or not it's it's possible or easy or hard for Asian Americans to kind of, um, you know, rally and get into activism in tech, but like compared to most other industries, right? Like we're pretty well represented, overly represented in, in tech, right? I think like Stats usually show us hovering around kind of 30% of the workforce, um, which you just don't see in other industries, right? So you can imagine that like you can always get um, a sort of voting block kind of thing going if you have enough uh, Asian Americans galvanized to, to speak on some matter, right? Um, okay, I know you, you had an essay where you talked about kind of the history um, about like why there are so many Asians in tech um, tying back to anti-imperialism. Do you want to kind of summarize like why that is and why that's important. Yeah. And, uh, this also kind of gets back to my thing I was saying earlier about wanting to give ourselves a different kind of like political or philosophical, like 
um, idea to hang on to rather than a dominant, you know, like, let's have a career and have a, you know, white picket fence yeah. and blah, blah, blah. But yeah, um, I think, yeah, like the reason why there's so many Asians in tech, you know, part of it's the immigration filter, of course, you know, you get more skilled people from Asia to come here and, um, that's going to be, you know, disproportionately people, you know, uh, people in these professions. But people often miss the fact that both, uh, you know, Asia had this massive decolonization in the 20th century, you know, like a lot of extremely militant anti-imperialist movements, you know, across the late 1900s and throughout the 20th century, the uh, 1900s, you know, fighting against um, Western colonial powers to gain freedom for their countries. A big part of that was trying to use science and technology to both bolster these anti-imperialist movements, but also as a kind of a goal to say, all right, once we get independent, we can use science and technology to develop the nation, eliminate poverty, blah, 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 you know, uh, industrialize the nation, access modernity, and uh, become as powerful as the Western countries. And so mm. what they did was, especially what India and China did, was they invested a huge amount of resources into developing technical education. They wanted to produce as many scientists and engineers as possible after, you know, they gained independence. So, you know, India gained independence in 1947, and China kind of stabilized under the Communist Party after 1949. Um, and that's really what gave backdrop to, um, you know, Asians kind of being racialized in the West as these, like, scientists and engineers. It was because these post-colonial states did a huge amount to basically put science and technology into the very ideology of, you know, these, you know, the post-colonial developmentalist programs. Um, a couple of funny anecdotes about that. So... <laughs> Um, China, uh, the Communist Party of China, actually, one of the first things they did in their, like, educational program was to shut down the premier liberal arts school in the country and then turn it Not into really. an engineering school. <laughs> so they're basically <laughs> saying, like, hey, you know, forget these humanities nonsense. We're done. We won. Let's, uh, you know, let's turn this into an engineering school. And just what what year was this? This was uh, Xinghua University. Oh, oh Xinghua. I've been, to, I've been to that campus. Uh, yeah. Be, yeah. That's, it's, that's it's, like the MIT of China, right? Yeah, exactly. It used, Asia, to, it used to be like, I don't know, Harvard of China. And they were like, you know, fuck yeah. Harvard. Like, we want, we want engineers. <laughs> so they, they got on the STEM train way before that shit was popular. Yeah, they were like STEM master race. Fuck these underwater basket, basket weavers and whatnot. Like, we gotta make, uh, <laughs> oh, um, yeah. And then the other act that was in India, which was, um, so India has their IITs, the Indian Institute of Technology. Yes. Very famous, very like, famous. technical schools. The very first IIT was, um, I think it was IIT Kharagpur in, um, shoot, I think, I think West Bengal, uh, yeah, West Bengal. But it was built on the site of a British gulag that they built to specifically house, um, independence fighters. They built this gulag in the 30s, I think, um, to basically like jail independence activists. And once India won independence, what they did was they shut down the prison and they turned it into the first engineering school. And that was wow. very intentional, and it was very, you know, it was meant to symbolize this transition to a, you know, post-colonial, like, technologically, you know, like, competent state. Um, and I think that was, you know, that's really interesting, and uh, people don't really talk about that much. Um, yeah, and basically the point being is that, you know, we have, this is like the actual kind of, this is a his, this kind of hidden lineage of why, like, so many of us are in science and technology. And I really think that we should bring that back. And we should really think about, you know, our position as engineers and, and scientists and other 
like techno scientific workers, not in the sense of career stability and like, you know, becoming a professional and making money and stuff, but rather in that specific, explicitly social and political terms. How do we use science and technology to actually help the world? How do we use it to, you know, back liberation movements? How do we use it to, um, you know, do, do good to ape a certain company? Um, so I kind of want to try to link that actually to, to Jimmy's article, um, in Commune. Um, so, so Jimmy, your okay. article, and, and again, we'll, we'll make sure these two essays are linked in the, the show notes, but, um, you know, you talk a lot about the importance of like, like understanding political ideology, understanding neoliberal economics and, and capital realism, uh, capitalist realism. Uh, it feels to me like this is challenging for most. Asian Americans, like most kind of people who, who like have their kind of head in the, uh, head in the sand and, you know, they want to make their, their six figure salary, especially in tech. And, you know, they want to live a good life that way, but not think about these things. Like, is it, do you feel like it's especially challenging for Asian Americans in that sense? Um, or is there some kind of angle here where we should feel more connected to these labor movements? Um, so I think I, I, I have an answer for you, but I don't know if it's that related to my article. My article's, uh, sure. kind of quite abstract uh, and less useful for kind of current struggles than the stuff that RK has written. Uh, but I think that, okay, I can't speak for all Asian Americans, but I'll just speak for myself. You know, I, I was raised and, uh, you know, raised by, by immigrant parents, uh, from China who, and I'm not trying to blame my parents, but, you know, this is the position we're in as kind of second generation Asian Americans oftentimes. Um, I was raised, to think that, you know, if I got in this train called education and studied STEM topics and then got a, a cushy job, then everything in my life would be great, right? Um, and I really believed that until only, you know, relatively recently in my life. And I think that that means that that's kind of double-sided. On the one hand, it means that it's a little bit hard to break out of this ideology of uh, playing into this this neoliberal and careerist game, as you said. Um, mm -hmm. But on the other hand, I think it also, at least thinking about uh, the the journey that I've uh, gone on, um, there is some hope there. So I think, you know, when I got out and started working, uh, which was not that long ago, the the huge chasm between what I was promised for my entire life, um, my entire childhood and early adulthood, and what I actually saw, which was, um, you know, uh, difficult, grueling work that stifled my creativity. I wasn't able to work on sort of the interesting technical problems that I wanted to, um, but, but that are not really available outside of academia. Um, I was not able to, you know, you're not able to work kind of the hours you want to work. You don't have, when you get home, you're exhausted. You don't have time or energy to, to do something fulfilling and expressive for yourself. Just this disparity between what you were told life uh, what would have on offer and, uh, what is actually available to you. I think that's a point, uh, of possibility for radicalizing, uh, uh, kind of upwardly mobile children of immigrants. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, that's really well said. I think it's like saying, you know, you have to look like take, take a 10 10,000 foot view of things and like look at what you're doing and say, is this all there is to life? <laughs> right. Like getting that six-figure salary or whatever, working a cool job with free lunches and whatever. And is that, is that it? Is that like, is there, is there, is there more to this than, you know, 
especially when you're especially when you're not working for yourself, right? Especially when you're working for a corporation that has kind of like um, goals in mind that may not you know completely uh, align with your own values or interests or or whatever. Like that becomes really difficult. Yeah, for sure. I think for me, the answer to that is uh, is to fight back. Now, I don't think that through organizing tech workers, um, I, I'm not optimistic that. Uh, I'll achieve kind of the things that I want for my personal life, like like complete control over my work, uh, getting to work on uh, kind of the completely useless algorithmic problems that fascinate me, or getting to work only three days a week or whatever, however little I would like. Um, but it's at least it's a kind of rationalization of my own existence, a kind of a way to give myself meaning uh, by fighting uh, the dictates of capitalism in the meantime. I, that's that's kind of. Uh... I'm trying to, I'm trying to like grok what you're saying a little bit here, right? Um, when you say fighting back, you mean it's, it's a, it's a completely internal personal struggle or do you think there's some aspect of it where you can fight back also by participating in some larger project, right? Like, like the work you guys do for TWC, for example. Uh, I'm not quite sure what you're trying to get up, but for me, I think the personal and, and, uh, the political structures are, are, are quite related. I just mean that. I feel like I live in a world where I just don't, I just don't get to do the things I like and I don't have control over my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to fight back against that, against, uh, corporate control over my life. Um, even if, even if, uh, such struggles are not going to result in, in the kind of life I would like to, to lead in the near future. It, it's just a way to, uh, to make me feel like my, my existence right now is not being totally wasted. Mm. Yeah. How how do you guys feel about this advice that sometimes people give of just of uh, you know, if you hate your job, just quit your job? Like is that is that useful advice <laughs> or is that like something that comes from a place of privilege only or like how how do you feel about that? I uh I always encourage people to quit their job uh, regardless of whether they like it or not actually. Um <laughs> I, uh, I actually, I quit my job. Um, I was working at a public utility a while back and I, it was, a, it was a good job actually. Um, it was mm-hmm. public sector and it was unionized. So, um, I was, you know, very lucky. Um, and also my supervisor didn't really pay attention to me. So I could really kind of slack off and do whatever I wanted a lot of the time. Um, yeah, not, not a bad gig. But you know what? I still quit because I still, you know, didn't really like the commute and, uh, you know, wanted, wanted to get that day back. And, um, and it was it was good. It was cool. And I think uh, I think basically anytime anyone's kind of asked me and if if they're able to quit their job and kind of live off their savings for a while, I always say mm-hmm. go for it. And um, I think I've actually encouraged more than a few people to, to quit their jobs at this point. Um, and uh, um, yeah, you know, and yeah, I mean, it actually absolutely is a you know, it's a privileged thing. I think you know, very lucky if you can quit your job and not have to work for a minute. But you know, I mean. No reason to not use that privilege, you know. Like you can quit your job, quit mm-hmm. your job, you know. Um, Jimmy, you uh, you quit your job, right? Uh, yeah. I don't. I don't really want to get into the details, but yeah, I did quit my job. I think that, uh, in terms of advice, I mean, everyone's situation is different. I think that if if you're working for a place like Palantir, probably the time has <laughs> has has long expired to decide that uh, uh, that that. That there's something to be gained by, uh, kind of protesting or organizing internally, um, Mm -hmm. uh, rather than leaving. But, um, at some places you can make, in many places, uh, maybe in most cases, you can make a bigger impact by, um, organizing and making change at the point of production. So, and you have to weigh that against your, 
uh, your personal situation. Uh, for example, I had, I developed pretty severe uh, mental health issues. And so you have to weigh those things. For sure. And I actually, the, the reason I'm asking you guys this, this question of, you know, quitting your job is that I feel like to some extent, you kind of have to have that confidence or stability or mindset or whatever it is that, that can allow you to quit your job in order to also take collective action, right? Or to do things like strike or walk out or work to rule or whatever, right? You, you have to kind of disconnect yourself from the, the fear of the master, so to speak, um, in order to do that. Um, and yeah, I mean, one thing it could be that you stay in your job and you try to act from within the job, maybe because you actually really like the company and you want to make it better. Um, or maybe you just leave, right? Cause it's just not for you as a, as a personal choice. But, um, I, I personally feel like a lot more Asian Americans need to get to a place where they're comfortable with quitting their job, whether or not they do it, just the comfort around, you know, extracting yourself from the system. If that makes sense. I think that's such a great point. I, yeah, I, I think we have um, a lot of insecurity, especially as Asian Americans, mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. kind of would take a lot of would take a lot of money in the bank to 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 feel comfortable quitting for an extended period of time. Um, yeah, yeah, I think it kind of gets back to what kind of like like where where are we drawing our pride and our, our values from? And I think mm-hmm. we got to get to a point where we're not, you know, judging ourselves and judging each other and. Um, you know, like measuring how successful we are by, you know, the, the careers we have and like how much work, how much profits we're generating for capital. And, um, you know, it has to, we, we got, I think we got to get to a point where, yeah, it is like measured in actually, you know, how much free time do you have? How strong are your friend networks and your family networks? Mm-hmm. How, you know, how embedded are you in our, our historical, in our, in our stories and stuff? Um, prayer, bring it more, making it more philosophical and social rather than, monetary uh right of course you know um, but maybe flip that all around of course that's only assuming that you're making enough money to like actually um how you say um to 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 be able to live um (laughs) i think you know that's uh (laughs) yeah maybe that's a good good time for us to to jump to final thoughts we're a bit over an hour 15 20 so um jimmy why do you want to give us some uh final final thoughts sure um so I have this dream uh, for Asian Americans in tech. Um, you know, right now, if if you go in, if you're an Asian American and you go into a job interview in tech, you know they kind of look at you like this automaton who's, you know, they hope to hire and then uh, bring a lot of bring a ton of value to their company. Um, and mm-hmm. um, you know, if if you meet if you meet me in person, you'll see that I. Uh, I, I look like an Asian American normie, right? And I, oh, I'm, I'm working on, I'm working on it, but for now I look like an Asian American normie. And I have this dream that one day, uh, we Asian Americans will, will be this tech workforce who, who all look like normies, but, um, but many of us are actually militant organizers. And then these tech companies will hire us and then find that we actually infiltrate their companies and totally fuck shit up. Um, and I think that not only would this, please me as an organizer and as a, as, as, a, as a radical, but I think it would be significant for the Asian American community um, along the race dimension as well. It would mean the death of the kind of respectability politics kind of thinking that we've been living in, we've admired in for so long uh, and that RK pointed uh-huh. out um, in favor of carving out um, 
a kind of militant minority identity for ourselves um, that stands in solidarity with other uh, minority groups as well. And of course, the um, the vast majority of people who form the working class, I think that would be uh, that would be pretty awesome. So for reasons that are personal, are kind of race-based, are um, uh, material, financial, uh, ethical, I hope for all these reasons that um, if you're out there and you work in tech, or even if you don't work in tech, um, that you'll consider um, organizing and taking action uh, at your workplace and beyond. Very nice. Uh, RK, you want to? Sure, yeah. Um, I don't have too many closing thoughts, but I just want to say I love that term, uh, militant minority. Um, Jimmy, did you make that up yourself? or I don't know if I've seen that around before. I made it up myself, but I feel like it's pro- it probably means something that I didn't intend. I'm going to have to Google it after this. Well, I like it, and I'm going to use it from now on. Um, yeah, I think um, I think that really, yeah, I mean, I think that encapsulates, encapsulates my general thoughts on all this. I 110% want to see see Asian Americans become a militant minority um, in in tech and, you know, in the U.S. in general. Um, and, yeah, you know, it's right to rebel. I think people, I, I want people to just reflect on their values and what, you know, what, how they actually are thinking about how they want to, you know, build their lives. And I want people to, uh, you know, politicize that and say, I actually, I'd rather, I'd much rather get value from fighting the powers that be fighting the status quo, fighting capitalism, whatever, than from just going with the flow and, uh, you know, drinking that boba, so on and so on. Cool. And uh, I just want to touch uh, on that that kind of idea of, you know, reflecting the values, right? Definitely something that I've been doing as someone who's been working in tech for almost a decade now, um, but also not really knowing much about, you know, what to do about it, right? Like I didn't really know much about, you know, tech activism like the actual like specifics of it um until doing the research for this pod and this conversation with you guys um so thank you so much for for being on the show i mean super informative i I do hope that a lot of folks um i think this is gonna be a, a, a free and not a not a um uh subscriber only episode so a lot of folks are gonna take care of this and maybe learn a thing or two from from the two of you uh so so jimmy and rk thank you so much for uh coming on and um we'll catch you all on the next one Thank you. Bye, guys. Thanks for having us.